That's a little telling to me. <laughs> Not that you wasted your education, but the question is what sticks, right? And so looking at the, the scope, those of you that are graduating, of what you have learned and what you have uh, prepared, what has prepared you for life, um, the, the fact that it's really hard to to remember specific words or specific phrases or specific quips and quotes that these people that we, we spent hours and hours and hours with, um, it's really interesting to me. I graduated uh, 32 years ago this week, so I'm old, yeah. And so I was trying to answer that question for myself. In, and I could only come up with six or seven quotes. But I had to, I had to do some thinking. I had to do some digging. And uh, I took probably hundreds of pages of notes. I was, I, I was very, uh, very forthright in trying to copy down. You know, I was hungry for knowledge and copying down everything that I possibly could. One class I had, you were basically graded on how you could uh, regurgitate the professor's words. <laughs> and so the, the closer to word for word that you got, the better you would do, right? So lots and lots of notes. And that was really a formidable time for me. I was in Bible college in Tennessee, and that was a, a good experience, and I learned a ton, and it shaped my life. It definitely shaped my ministry and my calling. Um, but I could only remember just a handful of quotes. And so... What I want to do today is actually share those with you and then share the why those stuck and then to talk about how our life with Jesus is to embody and to demonstrate his words, okay? So that's, that's where we're going today. So here, here are the quotes in no particular order. Now your education begins. This is from Dr. Gerald Mattingly. This was a week before we graduated. This was a, a commissioning. Now your education begins. And I remember what that felt like to hear those words because it was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I am so tired of education right now. I, I want to be done. I want to move on to the exciting stuff. He said, you've gotten a few tools. You've gotten a few resources but now your education begins. What he was commissioning us toward was a life of learning, a, an, an insatiable knowledge, uh, hunger for knowledge, and not just information, but experiential knowledge. And because I knew his heart and I knew where he was coming from, really what he was commissioning us toward was a, what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. This long haul walk with, with Jesus, learning from him. A couple of scriptures that um, have become really dear to me that came off of this commissioning. Second Peter chapter 1, Peter starts his letter and says, You've been given everything you need for life and godliness. Everything you need has been given to you. In light of that, add to your faith goodness, and to your goodness knowledge, and to your knowledge self-control, 
in perseverance, in godliness, mutual affection, and love. <laughs> so this is both and statement. You've been given everything you need. So in light of that, keep growing, keep adding to all of these characteristics of, of Jesus. He says, if you uh, possess these in increasing measure, they will keep you from being unproductive and ineffective in your life and walk. If we, if we don't keep adding to what we've been given, he says we will be blind and we will be nearsighted and we will... Life will go wonky. That's what one translation says. It doesn't say that at all, but that's, that's, the, that's where that's going. So this commissioning to uh, add to, now your education begins. Peter also says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that, that doesn't get done. Okay? That's the first, first thing I remember. Here's the second one. Get off this hill and into the streets. This is from... Dr. Stan McDaniel. He was my philosophy and logic professor. Awesome, awesome guy. He's the kind of guy that um, on his office door, he had the word they. It's like, what's that about? And he said, every other quote is they say. It's me. Which I thought was really funny, but obviously you didn't. He didn't really take to that humor. Uh, he's a quirky guy. So uh, that, that was flat, Dave. That just landed flat. Okay. Let me start over. Stan McDaniel was one of my professors. On his office door, he had the word they. And the people erupted by, ha, ah, yeah. So, um one time I made an announcement in chapel that we were going to have a Christian concert. And so for the next class period, he talked about how Christian is not an adjective, just to kind of mock me. In spite of the mocking, I love this man because he constantly told us we need to get off the hill and into the streets. The college where I went was way out in the country, and it was a bubble, and it was isolated. It was 20 minutes to downtown Knoxville. He said, you can spend your whole college career on this hill and totally miss what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He says, get off the hill and into the streets. Deuteronomy chapter 1 says, the Lord our God said to us in Horeb, you've stayed long enough on this mountain. Turn and take your journey. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers. Get out of the bubble. Get into the streets. The third quote I remember is from Steve Smith. He was uh, my biology professor. And one day, um, someone said this. They said, I don't understand why we are studying biology. I came here to study the Bible. And Steve Smith said, next slide please, biology is theology. Anyology is theology in so much that it should lead you to worship God. The gospel is not removed from the earthiness of the material world. Anything that you study at this university 
should point you to the breadth and the, the depth of the love and the creativity and the power and the majesty and the omni-everything of God. Colossians 1 says, For by him all things were created by Jesus in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. But also in Romans 8, Paul says, We know that the whole creation is groaning, as in the pains of childbirth. And not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. So it was a reminder in biology class that everything points to the power and the majesty of God, but also everything points to the fact that we are in a world that is dislocated and that God is restoring everything through Christ. Here's another quote. I don't know. I don't know. Here's the context. Another class guy raised his hand and said, Dr. Richardson, when do you receive the Holy Spirit? Is it before baptism, during baptism, or after baptism? And Dr. Richardson had a Texas drawl, and he said, heck, I don't know. And that just stuck with me. And the fact that he didn't know didn't come from this sort of spiritual apathy or passivity or lack of study. This man's brilliant. This man uh, knew the Greek inside and out. And in all of his study and in all of his work, he came to the humble conclusion, I don't know. And then he said, all I know is that I got him. <laughs> like, all right. All right. There is a uh, humility in that. It doesn't mean it wasn't a blanket statement that everything is up for grabs. In fact, there is much that God has revealed that we can absolutely know. But to have the, uh, the open-handedness and the humility to say, I don't know, reminded me of these verses. 1 Peter 5 Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 11, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Brad Burnett is from the hills of North Carolina. A lot of, West, a lot of southern folks down there in Knoxville. He said, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And what that was talking about was just nuance and paradox and, and living in tension, even through the pages of the Word. I mean, things like in Romans 3, Paul says, a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. But James says in chapter 2 of his letter, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Jesus says in Matthew 11, my yoke is easy, 
Matthew 7, Jesus says, how difficult the road that leads to life. Jesus says in Matthew 5, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. But the next chapter, he says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. So paradox and and, uh, nuance and theological tension sometimes can drive us a bit nuts because it seems like those are antithetical statements when really they are a fuller picture of what God, what in these verses Jesus is saying about his kingdom. My professor Brad Burnett don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, was alluding to the fact that we have to approach the word not just with humility, but with a realization that the paradox gives it a fuller picture of the vastness of God. And finally, this statement, in the name of Jesus who alone is our sufficiency. That's how Bob Martin ended every prayer in every class or every chapel service or every, every prayer in the dorm room with a student. <laughs> Which reminded me of 2 Corinthians 12. He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. So, six quotes uh, from professors 32 years ago. I uh, thought that was kind of cool to share with you because those made a profound impact on my life. But to keep this from sounding like a commencement speech, <laughs> I want to say, I want to ask, why did those stick? Why did those stick? And part of it was context. Dr. Mattingly saying those words right before we graduated as a commissioning. Now your education begins. Um, Stan McDaniel saying you need to, to get off this hill and into the streets. You need to get out of this bubble. That was uh, the context that we were so isolated and so much in danger of, of not really engaging with the world that Jesus had called us to engage with. The nuance that Brad Burnett talked about was this, this really this uh, pushback against this desire for a legalistic, really prescriptive, just tell me what to do kind of, of spirituality. So context help make those phrases stick because we were in the middle of it. We were living it. We were, we were taking those words to heart because that affected our every day. But beyond the context, I think even more powerful of reason of why they stuck was that there was a validity from the one who spoke the word. A life that is an embodiment and demonstration of the word spoken. So Dr. Mattingly, who said, now your education begins, is a lifelong learner. 
He's an archaeologist. Every summer he goes, in, goes on archaeological digs in, in the Middle East. And when he comes back in August, he is like this little kid in a candy shop. His eyes are open wide, and he says, he's just this nerdy, geek, kind of a scientist guy, so excited, not what he found in, in the sands in Jordan, but how that points to not just the historical accuracy of the word of God, but what that did in him personally. This insatiable desire and thirst, not for book knowledge, but to get to the one who wrote the book. And Dr. Madding, I mean, Dr. McDaniel, who said you need to get out of the bubble, was constantly getting out of the bubble. He taught at the Bible college half time. The other, the other half of the time, he taught at the University of Tennessee, philosophy in the halls of, of academia. <laughs> he was constantly taking students to minister to the homeless. He was constantly out onto the streets. And, and Bob Martin, who prayed in Christ, the name of Christ Jesus, who alone is our sufficiency, lived it out. Constant reliance on Jesus for every little thing, practicing the presence of God in every detail and every minute. Not to perfection, he had lots of flaws. But in a divine authenticity. So context matters, but what matters even more is that words stick when they are validated by the embodiment and the demonstration through the lives of those who speak them. First Thessalonians says, We loved you so much we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. First Corinthians 2, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. So we, as the people of God, are called to embody and demonstrate with the Spirit's power the message of the gospel. Tim Gomba says, The people of God do not merely possess the message of the gospel. The people of God are the message embodying and making manifest the gospel of God's reconciling all things under the loving lordship of Jesus Christ. We are created in the image of God. That's what separates us from everything else in creation. We are the only ones that can display the character like love and mercy and justice of God. And when we do that, we are revealing something about his nature. The problem is, we are also sinful. And so there is something lost in the translation in the way that humanity reflects the creator. And yet, 
we are being brought back into the original design, the original intent through the fullness of the redemption and restoration work of Jesus on the cross. We are being, being sanctified. We, we are being renewed. And so the church, we are his workmanship created for good works in Christ to walk as Jesus walked, emulating his ways and means, his grace and truth, his holiness and compassion. Guys, we are on mission to embody and reflect the power and the presence of Jesus. We are called to embody and demonstrate the ways and means of Christ. Paul wrote, I have resolved to know nothing except Jesus and him crucified. We proclaim Christ through declaration and demonstration, through being people of the word, sharing the good news of Jesus, but also demonstrating the reality of those words. Look in your Bible, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 2. First semester we went through this letter. I just wanted to come back to this passage in verse 9 of chapter 2. Just to remind us of who we are, but also of what we do with that identity. Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You are God's chosen people who love others as family, mirroring how God loved us even when we were enemies of him. You are royal priesthood, building bridges and reconciling people back to God. You are a holy nation called to display what the king is like, bringing his kingdom reign into every facet of culture. Jeff Vanderstreet writes, we are God's display people, showing the world what he is like. We are also declaration people who proclaim who God is and what he's done by proclaiming the gospel. This is our calling. Show the world the love of the Father, the healing and the reconciling power of the Spirit, and the sacrificial servanthood of the Son in how you live. Show them what God is like. The display of our lives is definitely more convincing than the declaration of our lips. Which leads to a need to have a congruency between our words and our actions. Matthew 15, Jesus quotes the Old Testament. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Matthew 7, he says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. Only those who actually do the will of the Father, of my Father in heaven. On judgment day, many will say, Lord, 
We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We performed many miracles in your name. And I will reply, I never knew you. And that knowing is a relational knowing. There's a disconnect, he says, sometimes between what people are doing in the name of God and actually God doing through them. A disconnect between the words of our mouths that sing praises on Sunday and the actions in our heart bent that we have the rest of the week. 1 John 2, verse 3 says, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did, embodying and demonstrating the way of Jesus. Authentically sanctified in order to be his light, his feet, his hands. I was thinking about um, just how used this phrase is the authentic self. I was at a, a conference uh, a few weeks ago. It was like an ecumenical type campus ministry conference. And they were making a list of what is most important and what is most needed in terms of campus ministry. And in the top three, there was the word authenticity. Authenticity. Uh, I, I hear it in, in conversations all the time. Uh, I read it in articles all the time. And authenticity is like what the word community was five years ago. The striving for self-authenticity. I read an article in Psychology Today describing it as, uh, we find it by looking in. It's, on the one hand, there are some... um, some positives in realizing that uh, a lot of us live as chameleons shaping to whatever form our culture wants us to be. But my authentic self can be authentically disconnected from the truth and the reality of Jesus. Here's, here's a short little blurb from an article from a woman named Eva, Emma uh, Scrib, Scrivener. She's from Ireland. So that makes everything she says sound cooler. I won't do her accent. Uh, this is good. Our, our culture says authenticity is being true to yourself. That's fine if your true self is a beautiful fairy princess. But what if she's a warty toad? What if, like me, she's authentically horrid? Should I be true to the self who has low blood sugar and feels like she's a piece of rubbish? The self who wants to punch the driver who cut her off in the freeway? The self who wants another cocktail and doesn't care about the consequences? The self who says, forget everything except what makes me feel good? The self who doesn't do repentance, discomfort, or a crucified God? Sure, I can be true to this self, but it won't leave a trail of magic. 
Even the world gets this point. Here's what the world really says. Be yourself as long as that self isn't stressed or anxious or frightened or tired. Be real, but only if it's filtered. Be beautiful, but only in these prescribed ways. Be on a journey, but don't misstep and make sure you're headed where everyone else is going. It seems that no matter how much the world celebrates authenticity, it doesn't know how to find the real thing. She says we're tired of masks, sure, but what if authenticity has become just another mask? One more coverage for our sins. With Jesus, I can stop pretending to be good. I can even stop pretending to be authentic. I'm known and loved by someone who doesn't wink at my sins or consider them the grit that makes the pearl. I'm loved in spite of what I'm like. And in the power of that grace, I can move out into the world. Nothing to prove, nothing to hide, nothing to lose. Ransomed, healed, restored, and forgiven. That's far better than authentic. Kevin DeYoung says the New Testament says little about getting in touch with the real you and a lot about walking in step with the real him. Aligning our words with our actions is really aligning our words and our actions with our heart. But specifically with a heart that has been completely changed and transformed from the inside out. Paul writes to the Corinthian church that they are a new creation in Christ. We've been transformed into an authentically new life in Christ. We've been given a new heart. And so may our words reflect our heart. Actually, they always do. But may our words reflect a heart that has been transformed, is being shaped into the image of Jesus into the reality of who he says we are, into the calling to embody and demonstrate his love and compassion, his truth and grace. Psalm 19, 14 is a prayer I I pray most mornings. And it simply says, may the words of my mouth in the meditation of my heart, be pleasing in your sight or be holy and acceptable to you, my rock, my Lord, my redeemer. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. When I used to write songs, one of my lyrics was, make my heart, make my words speak for my heart make my heart worth something real. To have a congruency of word and heart, a congruency of word and action, a congruency of word and his word, a congruency of word and the Holy Spirit. Oswald Chambers wrote, the purpose of Pentecost was not to teach the disciples something, but to make them the incarnation of what they preached so that they would literally become God's message in the flesh. 
Jesus says in Acts 1.8, you know, that concentric circle thing we talk about all the time. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and then you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. God takes us beyond our aspirations, beyond our ideas for how we think life should go and what should make us happy. He takes us beyond our authentic self and molds us and shapes us into a life that glorifies Jesus, that embodies and then proclaims in word and in action what he's about. Guys, this is our calling 1 Corinthians 4.20, the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk. It's living God's power. 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ as if he is making his appeal through us. He doesn't need to do that. God doesn't need us to embody and demonstrate the gospel. Oh, man, but I'm so glad he does. His grace invites us to participate in what he is doing. So Paul says in Ephesians, in light of all of that, just be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering in a sacrifice to God. I want that just to lead us into communion. So if you are serving communion today, that is your cue. We, we are called to embody and demonstrate the, the power and the presence of Jesus, the person of Jesus, We are called to embody and demonstrate the one who perfectly embodied and demonstrated God. Because he is, he is, was, and always has been, and always will be God. Hebrews says he is the, the perfect reflection of God. And as you read through, uh, those of you that were in community groups this last year, read through the Gospel of John, and you saw several times where he would, would say, I am. And then he would demonstrate who he was. So he, he said, I am the bread of life. Chapter 6, I think. And then he fed 5,000 with a kid's lunch. Right? He said, um, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he brought Lazarus, the dead man, out of the tomb. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's in chapter 8. In chapter 9, he heals the blind man. Chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And a few days later, he went to the cross. Jesus embodied and demonstrated the perfect love and the perfect truth 
in the perfect way and means of God. And so as his apprentices, as his followers who, First Peter says that we walk as he walks, we are called to do the same. Oh, to grace, how-